This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatter Nation? Thanks for tuning in and joining us for another episode. There's nothing more important than making sure all your people get home safe. And so Mike Anderson with Connectus Global joined us this week to chat about how they've built technology to locate all employees within a plan or on a site in real time in the event of an emergency. And uh, a pretty interesting story as to how he came up with the idea and some dramatic things that uh, had happened. So hope you guys enjoy that. So now let's get into the TPH Energy Insight of the week. So, you know, in the news right now, there's a lot of talk around emissions and carbon and greenhouse gases and climate change. And TPH's eTech newsletter put out a pretty good post the other day talking about the role that drought plays in climate change and how technology can improve this problem that we have with drought. But the issue is, is that, you know, there's a finite amount of fresh water on the planet. So how do you get over some of these? I mean, this is arguably one of the hardest problems to solve on earth right now. And, you know, coming from oil and gas industry, we know this, we know that it's hard to be in an environment where you have a high demand for water, but you have such low water availability. You know, think about all the water that we use out in the Permian basin and you're literally out in the middle of a desert. And I used to talk about just the waste that we'd have out there. I remember his back in like 2012, 2013, mm -hmm. West Texas was going through serious drought and you'd see a water hauler just spraying water all over the lease road just to keep the dust down on the lease. And I'm just like, man, this is so wasteful. You know, when we have such little amount of fresh water. And you have like super high demand for water combined yeah. with no water availability, particularly in areas like the Permian. Yeah. And it dramatically stresses the entire system. And so, yeah. So I thought the, I thought the newsletter was pretty cool because they were talking about a bunch of different technologies that can kind of help with either helping increase freshwater availability or uh, production of like wastewater uh, treatment, desalination, water transportation, uh, collection, harvesting systems, things of that nature. Yeah. And I mean, water recycling has been a huge focus yep. in oil and gas, you know, the last five years or so. And there's several companies out there that are focusing on that. You know, how do you recycle water and use and keep reusing it instead of just injecting it down holes? So really interesting things there. If you guys want to check it out, you can find it on uh, TPH's eTech newsletter. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Uh, make sure to check it out and sign up for more content from them. Cool. Let's get right into the episode. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Willing Gas Artist Podcast. Colin, who we got today? Yeah, we got Mike with Connectus Global. How you doing, Mike? Doing very well. Good. Glad to be here. Awesome. So, so AJ put us to, in contact. So Abhinav Jain over at CSL. So if you guys have been following the show for a while, you know AJ is a good friend. He was on with with Imran uh, probably what two three months ago. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Time flies. Uh, so. Are you guys working with CSL or are you just friends with AJ? AJ's no, they, uh, they AJ's came in as one of our investors. Okay, great, yeah. great. I don't want to get so here we got another story. One. Someone just sent me a message the other day. It's like, hey, is CSL sponsoring you guys or something? All you have is their portfolio companies on. <laughs> so AJ, AJ you guys you need to cut, cut checks, checks, man. man. <laughs> cut them checks, AJ. <laughs> so Mike, tell us what you guys do, man. Yeah, certainly. So Connectus Global, we're a geospatial intelligence company. So traditionally in the oil and gas space, you know, after I enter in on site, I swipe my badge once. Really, unless I go through a door, there's no way to tell where I am. So 
specifically around the safety portfolio. We support oil and gas companies so they can tell an emergency situation where their people are with very high granularity. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of questions around that because I've spent a lot of time on oil sites. And so sometimes I like when people don't know where I'm at. That way I can't be found. But <laughs> enjoy the truck naps, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So let's uh, talk about your background a little bit and what you did before Connectus. Um, why don't you dive into that so you can start as far back as you want? Yeah, sure. So uh, professional background. I'm a triple ticketed tradesman. So steam fitter, pipe fitter, a boilermaker and a B pressure welder. I cut my really? teeth. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So cut my teeth in the pipeline game in the early 2000s, mostly mainlining 12 inch and under kind okay. of deal. And yeah. then ended up switching out of that and gone into the turnaround world. So up in the oil sands in northern Alberta, punched that for a few years and built myself up to turnaround manager. And then Started working in the international games, so down in Venezuela and Aruba, did a lot of turnarounds there for the Valero folks, and then went over to Germany, did the nuclear game for a couple of years, and a lot on the rod shacks and froth pumps and things like that. Settled into Australia in 2011 to work underground mining for P&H Mine Pro before Joy Global snatched them up. Did that for a couple of years, then went into the surface mining game around drag lines, built the last Rio Tinto drag line that came into Australia, and then uh, ended up moving back into Canada at 2015 to work in an upgrader at First Enoch. Awesome. You did the full tour. You went you that was, worldwide. That's quick, man. He's got yeah. it on. He's got it on lock. You know, most people have to sit there and think about it. Like, what have I done in my life? No, not really. I so, think I'll live a lot longer being out of the game, but yeah. uh, it was a good experience. That's for sure. So I want to, I want to dive into this point that you were a pipeliner. And so yeah. you were actually out there in the field working on pipelines, correct? Yep. So yep. it's pretty cool because we don't have a lot of people that come on the show that come from, you know, this blue collar setting and type of work. So you know, to see you come up from that and then progress over time. And then, you know, eventually, um, you know, starting a company is really cool. Um, did you have like any, like, I know a lot of, I've seen like some of these pipeliner groups on Facebook and stuff. They have like gigantic back window stickers on the back of their trucks. Pipeliners for life. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. What's the, what, like what are some of the, the pipeliner sayings? Uh, appropriate for the show. Very few, but I'd <laughs> okay. say, um, <laughs> Yeah. We have, we have no bars hold on the show. Yeah, we can talk <laughs> no, about this a couple of good so, things, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, yeah the pipelining, pipelining piece was interesting. Really, really tight crews, heavy union background, but um, it was a different game up in northern Alberta because it's heavy sludge and muskeg. So a lot of pipe weights, things like that every, you know, 15, 20 feet, you've got to put another pipeline sandbag on it. So really, really challenging conditions yeah. and in the winter building all the ice bridges and all that kind of stuff. Yeah dropping all our shacks in by helicopter. So it was a, yeah. it was a fun game, but also uh, came out a thumb lighter almost kind of after that yeah. piece. But yeah. yeah, definitely a different game to be yeah, in. Yeah, so when I, I spent a month on the North Slope of Alaska and just the operations of getting things moved around, you know, like dropping in things by helicopter and driving on ice roads is like, this is insane. You know, just yeah. the things that you have to do to operate. So I'm assuming that you're from Alberta originally. Okay, cool. So, you know, I always told people, I imagine Alberta is just the cold version of West Texas. So it's, um, you know, I'm sure it's just kind of natural progression for a lot of people up there. Like it was for me coming out of West Texas, you know, I go working on drilling rigs straight out of school and then just kind of worked my way up um, from there. Was it the same being in Alberta? Is that kind of why you gravitated towards pipelining? In your early, early days? Uh, yeah, I think following in the father's footsteps, my dad was a welder and a millwright, so he did a lot of fabrication work and a lot in the farming agriculture space, but 
really just followed in his footsteps and got into the trades nice and young to be able to punch that. And the pipelining space, especially in, I'm from a very small town, Athabasca. It's only about 3,500 people there when I was going to school and, yeah. you know, APL, which is now long closed down, but um, that was one of the, one of the boutiques. So went there after school and happened to be, I was dating the owner's daughter. So it was easier to get a job there for a little bit. But <laughs> it's always a good in. way in. <laughs> it was at the time. I didn't last that long, but uh, essentially, no, it was a good, good experience. And between around Athabasca, there's the um, Alpac pulp mill. So usually you go to the pulp mill or you go pipelining. It was kind of the two, the two yeah. ones. Yeah. So where were you before um, you decided to start Connectus? What was, what was your position before that? So I was working at the Connectus story is kind of twofold. The when I first got the inclination to start Connectus, I was working at the um, one of the upgraders in northern Alberta. And, you know, January 2016, remember it vividly. That was when uh, the upgrader exploded. So mm-hmm. after that, they had no idea where anyone was on site for a couple days. And that was one of the driving uh, driving forces. But I mean, our first inclination for Connectus started in 2012 was working at a underground mine in Australia. And I don't know how familiar you are with underground mining terminology, but essentially I was working on a long wall, which in the underground space, there's two ways to mine coal, either entry development or board and pillar and the long wall. So long wall's got an armored face conveyor with a large shear that travels up and back the coal seam. It's got about a two meter drum, a couple hundred picks on it, rotates and shaves the coal off. So I was working on one side on the roof supports and on the other side, my good friend of mine, Gary, was working on the shear. And it sounded like somebody threw a handful of steel, a change against a steel wall. And I turned around just in time to see Gary's boots go over the top of the drum and it put his body through an inch and a half crack. So first one on the scene, be down there for a while. That's what drove me out of the mining game underground. But essentially what happened after that is I got together with some of the folks um, with PH Mine Pro and we developed a RFID chip that is sewn into coveralls and put a proximity sensor on the drum. So as you approach the drum, it shuts off. Oh, that's super cool. So I have a very similar story. My second month of roughnecking, our motorman was uh, adjusting the brake on the draw works on the drum and he yelled up at the driller and the driller kicked it in and sucked, sucked him into the drum. And, um, you know, there's should have been using lockout tag out. I didn't know anything about it at the time I was two months in, but you think about, you know, I mean, being able to integrate an RFID chip into coveralls and automatically shut off equipment when it's approached. I mean, that's amazingly, I mean, it seems simple, seems right? Simple, right? Simple yeah, Simon like, stuff. I, it's like, I don't, I don't want to undermine yeah. what you're doing, but it's like, man, yeah. that's such a simple solution. Yeah. So really cool. So, um, you know, you kind of developed this idea, you know, from firsthand experience, seeing the dangers and how they could be mitigated. And then what led you, you know, one, have you always been entrepreneurial? Have you had those tendencies? Because I mean, it's, it's something to, you know, quit your career, quit your job and pursue something. So, or was it just like kind of that heavy on you? like, man, I, there's gotta be a better way to do these things to make these work environments safer. What really drove you to start the company? Um, so always been more entrepreneurial thinking, forward thinking, that kind of piece. And, you know, in the past I've had other companies, I've Started a company in Australia called Schmick Cycles, where we built custom chopper style electric pedal bikes by That's hand. That's awesome. So all tigged framed and aluminum frames. So tigged up all the frames. We started a factory in Taiwan and launched that product. That's and sick. I love see, it. There's not a lot of money <laughs> in electric you choppers. Like, 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 the, like the Jesse James style choppers? Big ape hangers, yes. okay. orange tires, all Is that kind still of good going? stuff. You're the, you're the uh, no, but I do have a couple bikes spare. <laughs> <if you're interested. laughs> so. Orange County choppers of electric vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's yeah, awesome. so did that, but really, you know, after the incident in 2016 um, at that upgrader, that was the the last straw for me. I was really close with those two gentlemen, and uh, that being them being consumed, the company um, blamed the workers first because they didn't know where they were. Now, to put it in perspective, this is a hydrogen turbine, six stage turbine, takes you know floating hydrogen and puts it at 450 degrees, 750 psi. The theory was is that these two 10-year millwrights pulled a under-pressure thermal well, which I know them both very well. There's no way that would happen, even just trying to slack off the boat, the bolts on a 450-degree live flange. They're mm -hmm. tight as ever, right? So, yeah. so it didn't make a lot of sense understanding that, of course, they're going to blame the worker first. And it ended up coming out a couple of years later that it wasn't their fault and it was functional error of the equipment. But to put the families through that, to understand what was happening with them, that's not right. So in emergency situation, because we really have no idea other than those manual login log out books, where people are in the refinery or the upgrader, understanding that with high granularity, where are my people? Are they safe? Do I have communication with them? Radios don't do that. The GPS doesn't do that. RFID doesn't do that because of the metal infrastructure, the ultra wideband, having that military background and it being proven in the military. Um, that was the ultimate choice for us. So really 2016 is where it all came together and we started the development life cycle, registered Connectus in 2018. So very cool. So you said yeah. originally, so you were, so is the, the RFID that you had it sewn into the coveralls, is that different from the, the ultra wideband that you guys are using now? Very. Okay. Very. What is, can you, what is ultra wideband? Uh, ultra wideband goes on a very, so in terms of signal deposition, ultra wideband uses a, say a very ultra wideband, but essentially it has a dedicated frequency. Okay. So a very high frequency, which separates it from a lot of the IOT devices that are out there that use Wi-Fi. So Wi-Fi 2.4 gigahertz frequency communicates very openly. Anyone can get on it. The reason why the military defaulted to ultra wideband was because you can have a dedicated channel and put that channel over a very long range. So okay. within Wi-Fi, I walk away from my house, I'm 30 feet away, it drops out. Ultra wideband, I can push a signal 200 to 300 meters and still pick up that emergency button. So if a person has one of our man down devices, they can be out in the field very, very far away from the plant, source wells, down holes, anything like that, mm -hmm. hit the button and still get back to the control room with accuracy. Very interesting. So how does the, you know, say that you have, um, you know, five people on a remote oil and gas site and you're using ultra wideband, what is the device that's actually on the each person on each personnel? Yeah, so we've got two different styles. One is a lanyard style, looks exactly like an access control badge. The other one is a watch. Um, same thing, but it's got a, a small cover on it so you don't be banging it on anything. The piece with <clears throat> the devices is we wanted to bridge the change management of wearing new devices. I remember when we started pushing H2S devices to all the workers, a lot of them ended up in the truck, even more ended up in the toilet. <laughs> and it's really hard to get an oil and gas worker to wear something new. Yeah. So what we did is we combined our ultra wideband chip with the access control card. So you can't open any doors. This becomes your site access badge. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's funny on that point because I remember when I first started Roughneck, on drilling rigs we were drilling sour h2s wells out in west texas 
and we didn't have any monitors on the rig. We didn't have personal H2S monitors. And I remember someone coming out there and be like, man, this is fucking crazy that you guys don't have any monitors. And I mean, it took me several years to get used to actually wearing a personal device. And even, you know, if I think back to like 2016, it was still something that wasn't that common to wear them out there. And, you know, you fast forward to now, like it, it's pretty much mandated across Everyone's the board. But yeah. yeah, you know, you just talk about the adoption of having to get people to actually wear devices. I could see that being an issue for sure. Yeah. And we wanted to, we wanted to be able to position it. So it wasn't something that's always rechargeable. Like a lot of those forehead monitors, Mm -hmm. you get 10, 14 hours out of a battery. You've got to recharge it Mm kind of defeats the purpose. So they came out with the single head H2S monitors that last like a three year battery life. So our badges last five years. So you issue one badge, that person, you can recycle it. So from a total cost of ownership perspective, it's not a device that one has a very short lifetime from a device management perspective, but being able to deploy that out and say, this is your badge, you can recycle it through different workers in a turnaround application. But to be able to put that out with a long battery life, it takes a lot of the onus of that device management off the customer or off the client so that, you know, instead of pulling my access control badge out of an HID box, I'm pulling it out of a Connectus box. Yeah. Is it just super low power? And then that's what allows it to just stay charged that entire time? Uh, low power and blink rate. So we're essentially pushing SCADA data. Okay. Yeah. So we've talked about the physical component side of it. You know, is there a software um, component as well? Or how is this, uh, how is the system managed and how are people tracked? Yeah. So the nice thing, and when we positioned the company, we really wanted to be able to own that manufacturing experience right from the manufacturing of the processing boards all the way through to the end customer. So we not only manufacture the hardware, we develop all the software and we deploy it on site. So from a software perspective, we built it from the bottom up that e-mustering, last known location reports, project readiness reports, things that actually provide value to an operations or a maintenance person, not just seeing people move around on the screen. So we put a lot of work into the workflow engine around alarms that I can gain a ton of data around my site, not only from a a safety perspective, a productivity perspective, contract leakage, all of those kinds of things that depending on where I sit in the business can provide me a lot of value. So in the turnaround space, you know, project readiness, that was our golden report, right? To know if all my cranes, all my blinds, all my valves, all my tagouts are done, everything's staged in the field. Then I press the button on the labor mm-hmm. to be able to run that report before you call the labor. If I would have had that back in the turnaround game, like, and I found my sweet spot between that three to five million man hour turnaround. So anywhere north of 750 people, we would be able to punch those reports out and then tell how ready we were to actually start. And the back end value to that is if I can shave, you know, a couple of days off my float schedule, yeah. I'm in the clear, right? Yeah. So from a reporting perspective, heavily on the safety, but the software really is developed from an operational point of view. Got you. Yeah. So are you guys focused on only oil and gas and other, I mean, I know you had previous experience in nuclear over in Germany, but are you guys focusing on oil and gas? Because I'm sure that this technology could be applied, you know, in all different types of um, industries and scenarios. So what is y'all strategy right now? Yeah, so definitely heavy on the oil and gas space, but uh, really commodity agnostic. So we do a lot of work in the underground mining space, surface mining space, We have some FPSOs going in Singapore and Asia Pacific right now. So we are zone zero and zone one certified, which gives us that offshore capability. So POB tracking or people on board tracking, Mm -hmm. man overboard stuff, that kind of thing. Yeah. The definitely focus on the mining game as a stretch goal here for next year. But 
I'm seeing a very large shift in the smart manufacturing space. Some of the, some of those large players are really focused on more rather than just production loading, using this geospatial intelligence to be able to drive operational efficiencies right through their supply chain as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I, I want to kind of talk about the mining aspect a little bit more because I don't think we've ever had anyone on the show that's kind of no, focused on the, the mining sector. And, and to be honest, I don't know a ton about mining. And it's just interesting. I, I talked to a founder today from Silicon Valley and he has a, um, it's, it's a software that kind of deals with wearables, something, you know, similar. It doesn't do the same thing as this technology, but in the same type of bucket. And he was asking, you know, kind of what's the sentiment around oil and gas and, and mining in particular. And if you talked, I would say if you talked to the majority of founders out in Silicon Valley and you told them, yeah, I'm building a product that's going to be deployed out into the mining industry, they'd be like, why the fuck are you going into the mining industry? It's a dying industry, right? And so talk about that a little bit. You know, how is the mining industry adopting technology? You know, are, are they looking for new technological solutions? And, you know, as a founder that's providing a product to that how do you get people excited? You know, how do you get investors excited about that? Because you have to come overcome that barrier where it's like, oh yeah, we're looking to deploy technology into oil and gas and mining. It's like, who the hell wants to you know, be involved in those two industries when they're constantly attacked? So talk about everything that I just covered. I know it was a lot. <laughs> this episode is powered by W Energy Software. If you've listened to our episode with W Energy's Pete Waldrop a little while back, then you know these guys are absolutely crushing it. Uh, they've recently grown their upstream client base by about 80%. Their cloud-based platform is helping operators like EOG, Apache, WX. Uh, their cloud-based platform is helping operators like EOG, Apache, WPX, uh, soon to be WPX Devon or Devon PX, who knows, uh, Range Resources, Kaiser Francis, Legacy Reserves, and a whole bunch more. You know, this isn't the first downturn, and it's definitely not going to be the last. And so cutting edge technology like W Energy can help you keep your GNA costs down, increase your team's efficiency, and ultimately allow you to do a whole lot more with a whole lot less. Plus, W has some of the best customer service in the business. Their implementations are super easy, and their platform is user-friendly, intuitive, and it looks good. That's kind of important to a lot of people. So go check them out at WEnergySoftware.com. The mining space is really interesting. One, you know, lived it, used to work for um, PH Mine Pro. Joy Global and Komatsu tiered up. The The thing that I really like about the mining game is that depending on how you structure your technology, whether it's asset-based or commodity-based, you've got a really good opportunity. And the adoption, I find, is a lot stronger in the mining game than in oil and gas. The oil and gas piece, because it's all fixed infrastructure, all based on asset and hierarchies, is that in the mining piece, it's all about life cycle management. So I'm running benchmark hours on all my equipment, regardless of whether that thing is digging, running or walking, I need to change that component. So everything has an hour count on it. Mm. So when I look at the mining assets, if you have technology, productivity technology, payload technology, and even so a good example, swing time on shovels. Right now for a PH 4100 boss, I can do swing time for 32 seconds bench to bucket, right? So being able to shave two seconds off of that cycle time is going to put another 400 tons a day in the bucket. When I look at that metric, those couple percentages, so the yield is much higher in the mining game, I yeah. feel, which drives adoption. And because it is so asset-based with that 
life cycle management flavor. If I'm approaching it, it's much easier to get pilots in the mining game because I can pilot one vehicle or yeah. I can pilot one solution in one train rather than if I'm piloting something at the refinery, it's refinery wide or it's train wide or production facility wide. So in piloting and adoption, I find the mining game a lot easier. We've definitely identified it, especially in the underground space, because a lot of dangers underground, also very heavily regulated. So mm -hmm. being able to have a safety technology that addresses not only regulation from emergency response and safety, also has that productivity flavor. We find it a really easy market to approach. I was just reminded of this random story, but did you ever hear that story? I think it happened in the 80s in Louisiana where they were drilling that well off the shelf and so they're out on this um on this barge drilling this well and they drilled into a mine into an underground mine did you ever hear about this i did not so i gotta send you the i didn't know about it until a month ago i watched a youtube video on it the craziest shit so they drilled this well and so, obviously so they're, they're in the shelf so they're yeah okay. yeah so they're out on the water on the barge okay. and there's an underground mine and they drill this hole and essentially they they puncture the mine yeah. with this and all the water starts draining into the mine and it creates this giant whirlpool and it starts sucking in all these barges and ships wow. and it's insane never heard about it until i watched a youtube video on it the other day so we're gonna put <laughs> a link that, to it in the show yeah because it's extremely yeah, interesting send that across i've absolutely. never had the opportunity to talk about it on the show but there we go there's yeah. there's my crossover between mining so, and oil so, and gas so everybody thinks that mining is a dying industry and i think for so long it has been but to your, I mean, I'm, I'm asking the question because I don't necessarily know, but I would presume with with everybody wanting to go to electric vehicles and with new battery technology, lithium is in high demand. Yep. You have to mine that somehow. Very true. Right. So isn't the lithium side of the business just absolutely booming at this point? It's definitely booming. But the the life cycle of the mines, I mean, you've got a 25, 30 year life cycle for these mines, especially looking into the South America, copper seams, gold mines, things like that. Is that there's definitely a focus on lithium right now, but the coal industries, the hard rock industries, some of those precious metal industries, especially around tin, they're, they're not going away anytime soon. So, I mean, the runway over the next 20 to 25 years is, especially, and you're seeing it with all the major OEMs getting involved in the autonomous haulage systems, things like that, mm -hmm. without, and that was probably the segue, is without that kind of technology adoption, the optimizing of those solutions, I think that's where the next biggest opportunity is for the mining game. I don't think it's slowing down. I think what they're trying to do is optimize that recovery strategy so you don't have to have so many people in the field you can use those people to be maintaining a much higher level of equipment. Yeah, absolutely. Is the mining industry looking towards, or maybe they, are they under pressure, maybe the same ESG pressures that maybe oil and gas is under to become more efficient, to become cleaner in some way? Of course. Using new technology yeah, safer. Of course. Okay. And as a watch this space, definitely on the Komatsu AHS system that they've put out. So I got to collaborate with them during my time there on their AHS system and everything from cabless trucks. I mean, a, a truck cab for a... For a hauler, that's half a million bucks, right? So cut that off and all of a sudden you've got a lot of money for technology. So any optimization that you can do for change out, you said benchmark hours, reducing that carbon footprint of the operation. So we did a ton of work in Australia around continuous haulage systems. So bucket wheels, things like that was the preliminary for it. But 
now that they've gone to these large crushing conveying systems, that's where the future of mining is going away from the truck and shovel operations. Mm-hmm. So seeing a huge demand there for more of those continuous mining operations. Do they have any like, uh, I mean, this is, I'm going on a tangent here. I'm just curious about mining now. Do they have any like, um, you know, you got the Roombas and they clean your house. Do they have any like Roombas for like big <laughs> trucks where you can just like go and just, it just starts mining? Strong. I can just imagine you can have like this mesh network. Of Start these, automating the mining yeah, process. Like these, big, these big cat tractors <laughs> or something. So they do drills. Really? Autonomous drilling. Yeah. hundred percent. You lay your drill pattern, put your rod stack in and it goes to town. Now yeah. we need a mining podcast. We need to talk about that some more. So coming back to oil and gas. (laughs) um, (laughs) Welcome to the mining podcast, guys. (laughs) So, you know, you talk a lot about turnarounds and work in refineries. Do you guys do any current operations in upstream side of oil and gas? You know, do you find applications? um, You know, like I can give you an example on an oil and gas. Well, if you're on a drilling rig and you have a blowout and the rig's burning down and it's an unsafe environment, you know, you don't know what kind of gas, if, if it's sour gas, you don't know how to extract those guys. I could see this application being used there. Have you guys started exploring that yet or are you focused mainly on the downstream sector? Um, we've definitely explored a couple um, upstream use cases really for supporting the exploration piece. So mm-hmm. we do have as part of the system a satellite version. So not only on power over Ethernet and Wi-Fi, but being able to support clients all across the globe. So not so much on the gas detection piece as a recovery strategy, but mm-hmm. definitely there is blowouts. We do hook up to your PAGA system, your loudspeakers, any of your sensor technology We have a satellite overlay so that not only can we pull together all the location data of the people, but you can also overlay that with other disparate data sources like your live sensors or any of those other sensor technologies around gas. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because, you know, one time I was on a well and it was just right on the verge of being a blowout. We ended up containing it and getting it shut in. But I mean, it's hectic. I yeah. mean, it's hectic. You're talking about it. It sounds like a train, you know, running through the site and everyone's running around and, you know, you see these rigs that aren't able to shut it in and they end up burning down. And I mean, it seems like a day before, um, you know, if you hear through the news, if everyone was all right, was everyone accounted for? And the reason that there's such a delay in the news is because operations, it takes a long time too. It's like, Yep. How do is everyone accounted for? Okay, if you got everyone at the muster point and you know there's five people there, cool, you got everyone. But sometimes you don't know how many people are on location. You know, not all locations and pads have a sign-in trailer or a security yeah, guards coming so, in and out all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, you got all water haulers coming in, kind of so it's like you're trying to figure out who was on location in the first place. Right. Yeah. And then, so I, I see that there could be a lot of applications for this. Um, you know, fortunately the technology and safety protocols we have now, you don't have rigs burning down as often, but it's, it's still a very dangerous operation. So still very dangerous. Yeah. So just curious, you know, if you guys are going on that and then, um, you know, do you guys always plan on staying energy centric and focusing on that? Because yesterday a massive, apartment fire happened by my house burned down the entire apartment complex fortunately it was a new build no one was living there but i was just thinking you know in terms of like firefighters and things of that nature you know same thing applies you need to be able to keep eyes on your guys you know wherever they're at so do you guys ever plan on taking this technology outside of energy or just energy your your main focus Energy is definitely a core focus, but in terms of other applications and use cases because of our level of certification that we have for the product 
hard for us to compete in that light commercial or residential model. So essentially, if it doesn't require that level of certification, there's lots of folks out there to do it. They're doing it already. Yeah, they're doing it already. And I mean, from an emergency response perspective, our technology really holds a lot of value to that fixed infrastructure because you can use it for not only your people, but also your assets. So medium to low value assets. I mean, turnaround space. We'd sign for four packs, air compressors, everything else under the sun. End of the turnaround, half of it's there. So being able to find that stuff, super handy. In an emergency response perspective, outside of the gates of the facility, lots of GPS technologies, we integrate with a few of them um, to be able to pull those signals together, especially in the telematics world. But I believe that our biggest value in servicing the customer is really in that industrial setting, but yeah. being able to spread right from the worker all the way back to the DCS system and show the value chain exactly where that person is and well where your assets are in that value chain. So yeah, there's definitely a need in some of those spaces. And unfortunately, the technology adoption isn't always where it needs to be, especially yeah. the firefighters, emergency response folks, but really for the style of system that we have um, addressing that industrial market and providing that single pane of glasses is yeah. definitely paramount with the level of certification that we've got for the system. Yeah. Is there any way to do it outside the confines of, of a facility? The reason I bring that up is because mentioning, uh, thinking about some of the military applications of, you know, as of right now, I'm, I'm reading the um, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, and they're, they're talking about, you know, the different, you know, missions and stuff they're on, and I was obviously in the Marines, and one of the biggest things is it's like you don't know where your guys are, especially yep. when it's hectic and you got platoons all over the place, you know, and you can't necessarily use GPS because I was communications in the Marine Corps. And so like understanding the different waves and all that kind of stuff, you've got to use this antiquated technology. Like we use something called Blue Force Tracker, which was like not as technologically advanced as your iPhone. Yeah. But you're essentially manually updating. There's a little bit of GPS, but you're kind of manually updating everybody's positions. Yeah. Okay. On a screen that's sitting in a truck. Right. And it's kind of like uh, you're kind of you're, you're you have some satellite, but you're, it's also manual input. So, yeah. you know, is there an easier way to kind of keep track of your people, especially in, in a time when you're getting bombs are blowing up, trucks are blowing up, you're having, you know, fire, you've got men down like it's completely chaotic. Yeah, I, I see those as being a great application, but I don't know if you can get over that barrier of not having a, a defined facility for you know, a, a technology there's, like that. There's definitely some bridges that you can do with LoRa modules, long range receivers, things like that. There is a bandwidth for you to operate in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the longest radio shot that we've done with our long range receivers is about three kilometers mm-hmm. to be able to measure. But anything outside of that to achieve that granularity, you're punching within 50, 75 feet, right? So three depending kilometers on is a pretty, pretty long ways. Yeah. Three <laughs> kilometers is pretty <laughs> long, could, right? Could, so. could you mount something like on a truck or a tank that's <laughs> yeah. a convoy? blast out these guys are all wearing devices and you're able to at least see and get an know, update with, yeah within yeah. a few meters of you know hey where are they at yep that's right so we've tried that before in the conventional oil and gas space with okay. the mustering so setting up some long-range receivers being able to pull that signal over the network and then essentially because you're only using it in a mustering situation i'd say that'd be very similar to the application you're speaking of is i want a quick update mm-hmm. where are my guys are they safe where my guys are they together, so on and so forth, right? So in that application, mounting it to a truck, we have mounted some to vehicles before, but then you need to base your communication backhaul on the vehicle. So it's one thing to receive the signal from the tag to the receiver, very easy to interpret. You don't need communication bandwidth to do that, but to then extract it from that receiver and use it on a web interface or on-prem server or something like that, that's where you need to make the connection. So yeah. it'd be... That's probably where you'd use the satellite and the GPS piece to be able to pull it forward. But to get that signal update in a mustering or safety situation. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you guys, um, you're, you're backed by CSL. When you decided to start this company, did you start it, bootstrap it, MVP it, or did you go straight to capital providers and tell them, hey, I need some resources to do this? Kind of tell us about that transition and actually starting the company. A lot of bootstrapping. Yeah. A lot of bootstrapping to put it together. So two years in R&D, completely on our own. We took it. So originally the company, you know, we founded just a numbered company, started on development, working that through just weekends, nights, all that kind of good stuff that we normally do. Um, And then in 2017, we joined forces with IBM and we went in one of their accelerator programs, the District Ventures program. Did that for six months, got a lot of experience and collaborated on their work right solution, which ended up supporting their smart city strategy, not the industrial space at the end. But after that cohort was finished, went forward another couple months and raised a small amount, friends and family. We brought in 25 grand to mm-hmm. be able to fire up the first round of prototypes and molds. After that was finished, um, we started bringing on some teams. So again, just bootstrapping everything we can to be able to contribute. And then in 2018, when we filed and registered the company. That's when we started going out to the market and ended up doing two more rounds with friends and family before um, we closed CSL this year. Cool. I love it. So, you know, for you moving forward, what are some of the things that you guys are looking to do over the next six months? Um, You know, what what are the goals for the company? Where are you looking to move towards? Um, so probably two part question. The the first piece on where we're planning to go with the company, a big focus for us is integrating not only our RTLS system or real time location, we also have a electronic permit to work. So a big piece for us is integrating those two systems together, not only to attack your core permitting systems around hot work, cold work, confined space, ground disturbance, so on and so forth, but bringing those together in some of the specialty permitting items. So especially around subsea and underground, drill and blasting, those kind of use cases. So integrating those two together, we are putting those on a graph database. So being able to support that enterprise level architecture. And then also we have pivoted some of our technology for a pandemic response initiative that we're launching in Las Vegas next week. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's taking a lot of work. I'm sure it's exciting though, huh? It's pretty exciting. It started out as an app uh, that we called QC Clock. So it was uh, an app originally to be able to aggregate data sources. So isolation plans, declarations, waivers, all that kind of stuff and share it over the core to blockchain. So we spun that up in about a month in February, March when we were all looking down a pretty dark corridor before yeah. this thing got started and then uh, partnered with a company out of Toronto in Canada called Citizen Care Pod that manufactures a mobile lab in a shipping container. So what we've done now is combine forces and we have a full blockchain enabled NIST compliant um, backed by the R3 network, 110 banks, 90 regulators. We've put that together in the Citizen Care Pod and we're launching it for a large venue screening and testing solution. So Man, using could- a 15 minute test your COVID tests, get in, get your results over the blockchain, and then have RTLS to manage all your social distancing when you get inside the concert. Big blockchain fan over here, so I'm sure we could have an entire podcast dedicated to that operation. That's really cool. It's one of the first good uses of blockchain I've heard in a while. Yeah, (laughs) Not the Bitcoin guy, that's for sure. I'm a big Bitcoin guy too, so (laughs) don't get me started on Bitcoin. I'll talk your ear off too. Um, So Mike, 
if anyone wants to reach out to you and hear more about the product or how they can uh, use you guys, where can they find you at? What's your URL? Are you on LinkedIn? Yeah, on LinkedIn, um, as well as on the web. So connectusglobal.com. And then for any any inquiries through, just info at connectusglobal.com. All right. We've got a satellite office here in Houston, office in Canada. And then as well, we're firing an office up in uh, Abu Dhabi here later on next oh, cool. year. Awesome. So. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. Appreciate your time. Yeah, yeah. it was great to yeah. you, man. Beautiful. All right, guys. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please take two seconds to leave us a rating review. Or to tell your friends. Just spam them all. And we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Come, 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 come.